uh, taking a device offline so that you can run a scan, uh, that's a non-starter. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like doing heart bypass without a you know, <laughs> bypass machine. Right, right. You, know, you just hold your breath for the next 16 hours and we'll have everything all sorted out. Hi, I'm Craig Young. And I'm Bill Malik, and you're listening to Real Cybersecurity. Hey, Bill. Um, you just returned from Japan. Um, what was your experience there this week? Well, uh, always lovely to be in that country. Uh, tremendous cuisine. It turned out we had uh, pretty good weather, a little rain one day. Uh, didn't get out and about that much. This was the first time I was in Yokohama. The thing that impresses me the most about Japan from a technology perspective is the uh, rapidity with which they adopt and deploy uh, technology, uh, both on the consumer side uh, and also uh, industrially. Uh, consumer technology, uh, I remember I was there many, many years ago, and at that time the United States cell phones were black. Uh, I went into a store selling cell phones and they had racks and racks, and the only difference was the spectrum of colors. There must have been 2,000 different colors and styles. Uh, in industrial technology, uh, Japan is using uh, robotic automation as a way to sustain high quality and high productivity without depending upon uh, a physical workforce. Um, that is partly uh, because of the uh, cultural emphasis on quality that actually was introduced by uh, U.S. quality experts in the 1960s, uh, Duran in particular, but also because they're facing a challenge with um, uh, demographics. Uh, the population uh, distribution in Japan is skewing more towards uh, the elderly than in Western Europe and the U.S., although we are following that track. And this is a problem that's going to be hitting us, so seeing what Japan's doing about it is going to be quite uh, quite informative. Um, it seems like they've got two bad trends there, then. They've got an aging workforce, so skill shortage has often been a topic in cybersecurity. Uh, and the second issue is, you know, heavy emphasis on IoT, which is highly vulnerable. So uh, how do those two trends coming together sound like potentially bad news. It, it is a uh, volatile mix. Um, IoT is very weakly protected. Uh, the technology lives a long time. It uh, is hard to update. It's frequently located in, uh, in hard-to-get-to places. Uh, of course, in the home, uh, you can get to it, but then what do you do with it? Um, we found that uh, in home automation solutions, when you have 10 devices you want to coordinate, your uh, home automation scripts can be over a 1,000 lines long. Now, a 1,000 line long program is just a, a bear uh, to deal with. Uh, and if you don't have the right kind of tools or professional training, uh, it's real easy for somebody to uh, drop in something that you would never know was there, whether it were uh, malware allowing an individual to uh, get into the home or whether it was something like a cryptocurrency miner taking advantage of your uh, your power and your CPU cycles when they're allegedly idle. That's still theft. It's not obvious noisy theft. It's passive-aggressive theft, but <laughs> you're still losing resources and right. enriching somebody else. Um, a lot of the advice around IoT security has been to, you know, compartment it from IT, uh, monitor it uh, heavily because you often can't put agents on it, and segment it, so keep it separate. Um, 
you know, in the Japan scenario or for some of the work you've done around, you know, satellite communications and the like, um, you know, is that traditional, well, traditional, it's only been a few years of it, but that traditional advice around securing IoT, do you think that can apply in the uh, Japan scenario or for some of these new, very specialized areas such as satellite communications? Well, I, I think there is room for optimism there, yes, uh, for two reasons. The first is the technology is getting better at a rapid clip, and the second is uh, the uh, the Japanese uh, corporate marketplace is very aware of the magnitude of the problem and therefore uh, spending resources, uh, time and energy on architecting, deploying, and monitoring right solutions. We still have the problems that a lot of these native industrial IoT environments um, are not yet um, connected to IP. They're using native protocols. Very, very peculiar things. For those of us who are familiar with IP networking, the stuff that's going on between industrial robots is more like Morse code uh, just doesn't have the uh, the richness uh, that you'd expect, and the communications channels are thin. They're limited. The devices have relatively low power, not a lot of memory. Uh, taking a device offline so that you can run a scan—that's uh, a non-starter. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like doing heart bypass without a you know <laughs> bypass machine. <laughs> right, right. You know, you just hold your breath for the next sixteen hours, and we'll have everything all sorted out. So it sounds like they're taking it seriously in, in Japan. Uh, do you think more so than, than North America? I think there's still a lot of, you know, it'll never happen to me or I don't have evidence that it's happened to me uh, or, you know, they'll get the other guys first um, or, you know, we don't have that big an operation so it won't be that big a problem. Uh, in other words, all of the classic symptoms of uh, denial. And... This is a problem. It's it's an investment. You direct resources to this as opposed to that. You put in, you know, extra uh, hops in your network. Uh, now you've had to deploy another layer of technology. You may have to bring somebody else up to speed on uh, tools to make sense of the data you're gathering. And then, you know, in, in exchange for that, you haven't done anything to boost productivity. You haven't done anything to uh, improve uh, profitability. You've increased your uh, CapEx, or, you know, if you can do it with a SaaS solution, although in, in industrial networks that may not work. Uh, so, yeah, the financials are uh, skewed against you. Uh, right, right. Oh, I wonder how many, what the regional differences are. I found one region where there was a difference, which was the Middle East, where you ran a roundtable about, you know, uh, OT security operational technology, which is, of course, a subset of IoT. It's also interesting because there seems to be this you know, terminology gap where well, it's, it's, it's getting better now where IoT is kind of consumer, but it also encompasses the operational technology, which is the water pumps and the industrial stuff. Um, but this roundtable, everybody was expecting standards to fix it, which is really shocking to me. Like, you know, having sort of, you know, as we both have been around the sun a few times, um, you know, uh, expecting standards to fix this, uh, I think, is not a really good survival strategy. No, no. What they're... Um Eventually, it'll be beyond standards. It'll be uh, the usual cycle for step function type improvements in the security or safety of technology follows. You know, there's, there's a really bad, noisy breach. There's legal action resulting in a significant financial penalty, which then opens the door to further litigation. And at that point, interestingly enough, the manufacturers will then go to the relevant governmental agency and say, please lay down some guardrails 
So if we're within them, our liability is either limited or shielded completely. Uh, and we saw that in the case of uh, automobiles in North America, the Pinto disaster, uh, consequences of uh, Ralph Nader's unsafe at any speed uh, were not the Congress immediately woke up. It was the public woke up and then uh, a litigant uh, brought a case and then the industry reacted by saying, okay, we need to have some uh, regulations. I'm not sure if regulations and standards are the same. Um, regulations in place that would uh, protect against um, you know, further breaches. Uh, the, the difference between regulations and standards may seem kind of abstruse, but what I'm talking about here is the difference between a standard like the, uh, the ISO 27001, which is about what you need to do to be good security, uh, and a regulation like the PCI DSS, uh, which says, uh, if you follow this correctly, we will not charge you a lot to process your credit cards. Right? The one is... You know, here's here's a good thing, and they'll somebody to certify that you're doing the good thing fairly well. And the other is, uh, these here are the rules, and if you don't play by them, it's going to cost you Boku bucks. And and the magnitude of the Boku bucks is substantial. Uh, I don't know if you remember this from a long time ago. It may it may ring a bell. The uh, at one point Walmart was looking at in creating its own bank, and the banking community was like, no, no, they'll destroy you know the neighborhood savings and loan. The reason Walmart wanted to create its own bank was because Walmart spent, and this was 10 or 15 years ago, over $900 million in credit card processing fees in a year. So if you're losing almost a billion a year in credit card processing fees, it yeah, behooves you. It's a classic disintermediation, right? A- <laughs> right. I'll, I'll start my own bank. I'll, I'll charge myself. Yeah, well, we see that now, of course, with you know large uh, you know online shopping companies uh, trying to get into the you know have more heavily into you know the delivery game because that's a cost that they're you know that they can you know they can control and they're not giving to a third party. So, yeah, I wonder what the standards and the like though whether we're we're being too quaint and stuck in our ways, almost like you know expecting to make money off sheet music back in the piano days. Where <laughs> I look at the components that are in a device today and like. Just the ability to track them, or even the supply sources. You know, there's so many. Uh, the supply chain is just so complex for any device. You know, even a laptop, like forget a pump. Yeah. Um, even to control that is is almost folly. Like it's 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 almost like you know documenting all code uh, through all versions. It's uh, you know it's almost an impossible task. So I wonder whether that's a, a view that you know just won't work anymore. It it's a it's a it's a good good point. We've got so much complexity in our supply chain. I mean, at the one end, you've got Boeing, which claims, what, 3,000, 15,000 suppliers in its supply chain, if you go a few tiers down. Um, And something even as simple as, you know, the Nest Home Thermostat. Uh, I haven't seen a, uh, you know, a a teardown of what the components are, but I'm pretty sure that Amazon doesn't build them itself. I'm pretty sure they source all that stuff. Um, So maybe just having a bug bounty program... uh, Itself may be the the kind of you know the, the the first tier of a multi-tiered standard to say so instead of you know expecting secure design uh, you know complete secure design or knowing all the components at least having a way to protect the code and update it uh, maybe that's going to be the you know the best case of a uh, or at least an entry level case for uh, what standards could be. 
you know, that's, that's a great path to solution. You put a bug bounty program in place, uh, and then in order to do it, you need two things. You need the cash to pay people who come with it, which means you've got to be, you know, diligent, honorable, and in, 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 in fulfilling that commitment. But then on the back end, you've got to do something in your uh, product development and support chain so that when you do get a live one, uh, you can get a fix out there. Uh, and the answer yeah, yeah, is yeah. not. You, you know, just can't have a, have a lot of fire alarms and no extinguishers. Right. And, and the solution can't be upgrade to the next device. People are not going to buy a new refrigerator because of a potential vulnerability in their uh, internet software. Yeah. And with IoT, of course, is that patchability issue. And, you know, I think, I think that's going to be a capability where code will hopefully get more into patchable states and won't be burned into silicon or into we don't have that developer on board anymore. Um, a great conversation I had was with a manufacturer who, who said, hey, look, you know, we can't be secure because our competitors cost one cent more. Um, and if we keep the dev team, we'll, we'll pay more uh, and they'll put us out of business. So, you know, I think that this, you know, has to be secure is, is going to have to be a tick the box, especially when, you know, if these manufacturers are really getting killed on bug bounties, for example, um, you know, that's going to have to influence them. It's not the whole solution, but I think it's a, a big hammer, or at least to get them down a sort of a cattle shoot towards, you know, uh, saying, wow, let's just stop, you know, paying all this money out and try to make better stuff or to minimize it at least. Yeah, uh, dodge a bullet by uh, by making it supportable. The The interesting problem with, uh, with fixes is when you're looking at IoT, uh, how rigorously do you design for non-disruptive patches? Um, put a patch on my PC and the last step is, you know, restart in 15 seconds and there are environments where that just isn't going to fly yeah I've always said you know one of the great skepticisms I've had in my career has been this you know burn it into silicon or security in the chip Um, and I think there's been so many examples now it's MMEs we even have this discussion now so you know there's been a lot of manufacturers who've purchased AV companies or other companies security companies thinking wow that'll fix our security problems when you know um burning it into silicon or something that's that's you know not a defensible component or is actually the target um, is often a really bad strategy it's just remarkable that we have this discussion still but you know um, you know we don't uh, money isn't self-locking um, you know, we put it in vaults and things like that so yeah the burning it into silicone thing is a it, it, it works at the conference when you're talking to a bunch of uh, non-technically uh, deep uh, say business people or consumers, um, we put it in the silicon, so therefore it's it's safe and secure. On the other hand, we do have some uh, recent developments in chip manufacture where they're putting an additional processor and additional memory and additional network bandwidth capacity specifically to allow updates. So you have right. a, a processor. That's, that's, that's excellent. That's an excellent step, and that's where they should go to be more self-defending. Right. So you can you can continue to run the thing. And you can download a fix, uh, and that coprocessor can be used for not just handling fixes, it can be used for uh, digital signatures, it can be used for uh, message encryption, it can be used for um, supporting multi-factor authentication, and all sorts of good things. Here's the problem. Unless there is a real reason that neither a lawyer nor a technologist can find a way out of, those chips will sit on the shelf. Um, and that's why I really think that at some point, and I'm looking at you, California, 
Uh, we're going to see laws that say if you are trying to sell an IoT device into our market and it is not non-disruptively updatable, um, the answer is no. So it seems like two key components are one, you know, bug bounty program. Two is designed to be updatable, not burned in. Uh, those 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 sound like two really good things to have a either a new standard or at least some some buying behavior, design behavior. Yeah. Maybe that is, you know, maybe it's you know legislation to do that from that kind of jurisdiction would would have that kind of impact. That's interesting. I would I would hope so. You brought up a good point about you know the IoT devices having such low processing power quite often, or OT especially. Um, you know, again, that sort of goes against the security in the chip, and again, updatability for a vulnerable code is going to be much more important than trying to, you know, uh, bolt on, uh, you know, a piece of, uh, you know, bolted into silicon. So, you know, attaching something's fine. A security component that's attached, especially the communication channel, especially when so much is Bluetooth enabled now, or wireless enabled, or you know, cellular uh, enabled OT devices. That that's okay. Because then everything behind it is secured, and you're, you know, you're, you've ring fenced it. But yeah, doing it inside the device is, uh, seems like a, a bad approach. Right, and, and when you have a bunch of devices, uh, you worry about two things. The first is how do you stop malware from propagating, and the second is how much filtering can you put at the uh, perimeter. <laughs> Funny, we're still talking about that after thirty years. Uh, how much can you put at the perimeter without impacting, um, you know, uh, the the responsiveness of that complex for its original mission? So it's 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 a it's a balancing act. I mean, you put a do you put a device on every uh, sensor and uh, PLC in a you know 150 megawatt farm? Uh, you're talking about you know tens of millions of devices. Or do you put one at the edge and hope for the best? Right. How much uh, smaller would the attack surface be? Imagine if globally, you know, all OT devices were updatable, like so they could be patched, and all OT manufacturers, in order to sell them, had to, you know, have a bug bounty program, even if it was rudimentary. Like, imagine the impact on the attack surface that would have. So. That would be phenomenal. It would, it would yeah. ring down the curtain on a lot of things. I mean, even the, even the, the side effects of attacks, like uh, what we experienced with WannaCry and NotPetya and such. Yeah, for the lateral stuff. Imagine yeah. if we took all that money and time that people are putting into back doors, <laughs> you know, legal back doors, and, and redirect it towards fixing OT. Uh, I think that would be a much better use of resources. But that's another podcast. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a step function improvement. Thinking about that, the analogy that comes to mind is when Windows 95... Uh, put in protection for the boot sector, and a whole category right, right. of attacks yeah. just just vanished. It was gone. We didn't see those anymore. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, uh, it's been great talking to you about uh, you know OT today and uh, you know your your travels and regional oh, yes. differences. I'm sure we haven't finished on that topic either. So we may come back to it at some point. This is great. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time, Greg and. Men, men, women, and ships at sea. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And we'll uh, look forward to you all joining us on the next edition of Real Cybersecurity. That brings us to the end of this edition of Real Cybersecurity. I'm Greg Young. And I'm Bill Malik. Thanks for your time and attention today and joining us on our journey. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Real Cybersecurity. And our email address is podcast at realcybersecurity.net. Thanks.